Well, good morning. Time's used to me having a little here thing on. So, um, one of the things as we think about the gospel, that the gospel is not just for us, but it's for the world. And it's something that God calls us into the purpose of living that out and calling others to it and discipling others and leading those into it. And so as a church, we're committed to the gospel. And what that means as since we're committed to the gospel is that we're committed to see other churches planted and other leaders raised up and other um, disciples made in the city. And so as we think about that, we want to continually be doing that in our city and in our context and raising people up to teach and to equip others and all of those things. And so Chris is going to teach today for the first time. So I'm excited about that, that we get to hear from the Spirit of God through him in that. Um, But I also want to remind you, too, that um, this fall um, we're going to have two... um, Two people that are, well, two, three people that are entering into a two-year residency with us and that um, we hope to see more churches planted in Los Angeles. So Jeff and Allie are going to be entering into that residency with us and also Josh from Mississippi who will be moving here in the fall. Um, and so they'll be in a two-year course uh, that, that we hope to see more churches planted in, the, in, in, in Los Angeles and, and maybe even before that. Um, and so... Um, so I'm going to ask Chris to come up, and I'll pray for him, um, and just think about um, the idea that we get to be equipped uh, through the Spirit uh, today. So, uh, Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that um, because of the gospel, you call us into participating into what you are doing in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are the one that teaches us, that you are the one um, that, that draws our hearts to you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak through Chris today, that your spirit would rest uh, on this place and in our hearts and, and open our ears and our hearts to hear what you want us to learn as we look into the book of Revelation this morning. And so, Lord, we thank you for an opportunity uh, to just um, to, to listen from you. And so, Lord, we pray that you um, will give Chris grace as he teaches and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm honored. Maybe a little nervous to, uh, to get to teach with you today. That trip would uh, ask me to do such a thing. So as we continue uh, to talk about the book of Revelation and the seven churches, we're going to discuss the church at Sardis today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, it's also going to be up on the screen here. So verse 1 starts, To the angel... Of the church in Sardis. Right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. and You will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, 
Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As Tripp has taught us already, this book of Revelation can be applied to our context today. Even though it was written at a specific time, to a specific place, to a specific group of people. In that regard, it is like other New Testament books, like Galatians or Corinthians. The realities, both the encouragements and the sins of those seven churches in Turkey, back in the New Testament times, still exist in us today. So we're going to start with a little bit of history. I want you to have uh, a mental picture of what this church at Sardis looked like. Sardis was the capital of the province of Lydia, again in Turkey, and was proverbial for its riches. There's actually still to this day an idiom as rich as Croesus, who was the king and had near unlimited riches back in the day. Geographically, Sardis was built upon rock cliffs, which, which were dangerously steep. Yet, cracks and faults existed in this rock, which made the surface climbable. And this was, was played out during a Persian assault in 546 BC, back when uh, the Persian emperor was Cyrus the Great. One of his soldiers noticed that a Sardinian soldier had dropped his helmet off of the battlements of this citadel. And he concluded that the slopes were negotiable, that he could climb up in that one particular spot. So that night, a band of Persian troops and soldiers gained access to the upper city by following that very same fault in the rock. And they were surprised because when they reached the battlements, they found them completely unguarded. The Persians were able to conquer the city. The people of Sardis clearly found great comfort in their defense. Because even in the midst of war, they were not even keeping watch. So between the physical position of safety up on this rock and the relative wealth of the city, it had lured the citizens of Sardis into a dangerous sleep. Sardis epitomized complacency, overconfidence, and degeneration. They had grown lazy and lacked the diligence to protect their own city. Astonishingly, Sardis did not learn from this experience. As two centuries later, they were conquered yet again when approaching soldiers repeated the same feat of the Persians and again found the city unguarded and was captured. Twice, the Sardinians lost their city because they were too complacent to watch. Now, the people of Sardis in John's time, when this was written, would have been well aware of this history of their city. And this background is relevant for us to better understand what Christ is saying here in this letter. So let's keep that in mind as we proceed here through the text. So verse 1, again, so to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. So again, I want to remind us that this book is about Jesus. His glory, his kingdom, and his church. 
And here in verse 1, it shows us this again. Describing Jesus as the one who holds all God's kingdom in his hand. He knows all. He knows their deeds. He knows their reputation. And not only does Jesus intimately know the actual works of this church in Sardis, but how those works are received and perceived by the culture and those around. And as I was studying this, this like just this blows me away. Because I personally find it very difficult to ascertain how society and how our culture perceives the church as a whole. So to me, this simply convicts me of God's greatness. How absolutely huge and sovereign and majestic that he is. And again, as we progress through this text today, keep in mind this greatness that God has, that again, he is holding the world in his hand. And also, some commentators have said that the seven spirits that are mentioned here in the beginning text, while not mentioned specifically in the opening text of Revelation 1, it, uh, it is still a matter of, complete, of completeness. And we see the seven days that it took God to create the world in Genesis 1. So this idea of seven is really completeness. And it emphasizes how Jesus is one with the Spirit and one with the Father. He is in ultimate control. and He holds the fate of the world in his hand. So there are many words here in this text that John uses that are both deep in symbolism and meaning. Though the terms may be common and usage is easily enough understood... Each word belies a question that is being asked of the church in Sardis. So first, we have the word deeds. This word means, means work, to exert energy uh, as an act or a thing being done. The scriptures are full of stories about deeds, both good and bad. And it does us well to take, step, take a step back and discern for ourselves the difference between the two in light of both the word and his voice through the spirit. The next key word here is reputation. And this word here means, it it connotes the idea of prominence or honor. And one's reputation or one's honor in ancient society was the coin of the land. In a society where wealth was concentrated in the hands of the few, out among the rest of the people, your honor preceded you in the city and in all the surrounding cities beyond. Your honor is what gave you access and what gave you credibility to speak with whomever you transacted life and did business with. Reputation was absolutely critical. Now we have two additional words. The word dead and the word alive. The word dead here means destitute of force or power, to be inactive, or to be lacking of a life that it recognizes and is devoted to God. The Greek word used here is, is nekros, and it emphasizes more of a lack of being effective. So in, in English, we like to think of dead as like lifeless and like literally someone who has fallen asleep and, and died. But what is in view here for the people of Sardis is that they, they had become ineffective in their life and in their mission. And so to color this word some more, uh, Isaiah twenty nine thirteen 
speaks of this spiritual deadness. It says, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. But here in Isaiah, there's no devotion or true worship of God. And likewise, the people of Sardis had allowed their faith to become dead. Their hearts had been hardened to the Lord. Yet in this very same verse, John contrasts this deadness with the word alive, which means to have true life, a life that is endless in the kingdom of God. It means to have a purpose, a function on this earth. This leads us to answer the question that is asked by everyone alive today. Why am I here? We are here to live effective lives, bringing restoration to a broken world, bringing the kingdom of God to the lost. So deeds and reputation are closely linked here in this verse. As often in life, one's deeds lead to a reputation. And the church at Sardis had done great kingdom work in the past which had led to this reputation of being alive that it talks about here in the verse. And as we talked about, honor and reputation back in New Testament times was extremely important. People only did business with other honorable people for the sake of their own honor. I say this to point out that the church at Sardis was at one point indeed alive. And it was effectual in the kingdom which brought reflective honor to themselves from others. So as this letter is being written, there was still life in the church, as we'll see later in verse 4. But similar to the church at Ephesus, they had lost their first love. So I want to ask you guys this morning, how in your own lives do you live out of a reputation of being alive? What are some things that in your own life you are resting on the laurels of the things that have gone before. I think for me, sometimes I rest on the laurels of just being known as a Christian. You know, I have certain friends that know, oh, okay, yeah, he goes to church on Sunday, or he, he's a Christian, and for me, that's, that's good enough, and I can just let it be at that. I don't always have to be bringing the Spirit along with me, I can just rest in my flesh. And that, to me, is living on my reputation of being alive. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, seeing past success that we've had as on, on mission, and it's easy to, to rest in that, good. Uh, any other thoughts? Yeah, not, not engaging with what he's called you to do and just saying, oh, oh God's got it. I'll, uh, I'm going to go do my thing over here and let God take care of all this. Yeah, thank you guys for sharing. And so here at the end of verse 1 is where Christ brings the admonition. The church, the people of Sardis, are dead. Resting on the laurels of what came before. Much of what I think we all just said. This is a powerful reminder that Christianity begins anew with every generation. 
You might ask, how, how, how so? How is that? It's because Christianity is not biological. It's not from our lineage. It's not cultural, like Islam or, or Judaism, where you're born into it and acquire it by diligence. Our faith is relevatory and experiential. And it has to be so for every believer in every generation. Or otherwise we become like the people of Sardis, resting on what came before. Christ's work, his death, and his resurrection has to become true to a person before that faith can be exhibited. They cannot inherit that decision from their parents. They cannot receive it by simply being born. The church at Sardis had become dead. As we move along to to, to verses 2 and 3, it says, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what time I will come to you. So this phrase here, wake up, means to watch and to give strict attention to, to take heed, lest through remission and indolence some destructive calamity might suddenly overtake you. Wake up! This thought that comes to me when I hear this is of me just jolting awake in bed, remembering I forgot to do something. I have an overwhelming sense of incompletion and of fear. I'm totally operating in the flesh and thinking about the list of consequences that might happen. What, what might occur because I forgot to do this thing? I'm in a cold sweat, running through all the possibilities in my head, trying to figure out a solution. That's my natural response, right? And so let's compare that with how Christ is calling his church to wake up. So within the early Christian communities, this phrase, this word wake up, had become synonymous with waking up to God's revelation and to the moral life it ought to produce. And as we have seen already, their cultural history in Sardis is one of complacency. This warning from Christ to wake up did not likely come because they had accidentally dozed off and maybe had forgotten about God once or twice. The church had gradually degraded into a state of self-contented slumber. Surely, there were many signs, many warnings, many inklings of ineffectiveness long before this letter was written. If anything, the saddest thing about this is that it happened so soon. This church was barely a generation old and had hardened its heart so quickly. The church of Sardis had been infected by the culture of their city. Instead of the gospel and the power of Jesus defining the church, the people had allowed the cultural norms to become more influential than the Spirit. Their deeds were now unfinished. This word here, unfinished, is powerful. It means not fulfilled or not yet accomplished, not found to be complete. 
And it has the connotation in the scripture of, of being fulfilled. For example, John uses this word multiple times to say that Jesus has fulfilled many Old Testament scriptures that had previously been incomplete. So the prophecy was unfinished, but fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus' work is complete. Yet the deeds done here in Sardis were not complete. The deeds were being done apart from the Spirit. And without this finishing work of the Spirit, our deeds will always be incomplete. So with that, I want to ask you guys, what are incomplete deeds in your own life? What are you doing apart from the Spirit? How are we as a church family participating in incomplete or unfinished deeds? Yeah, absolutely. I think what's in, what's in view here is this incomplete and unfinished deeds is, is any work that is not empowered or alive in obedience to the Spirit. It's work that's done in the wrong motivation. Work that might be done out of duty or convenience or a lack of cheerfulness. But it really comes down to wrong motivation and a lack of love. So incomplete works can be summed up as as works done apart from the Spirit and not motivated by love. So what might happen if we do not wake up? We see that in verse 3 it says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. What may be in view here is what I shared about the historical and the geographical truths of this city. It was invaded when the city least expected it. The citizens were confidently resting in the past, the safety of their fortifications, of never having been conquered up until that point. Yet, a thief in the night came, and the Persian army found its way in. As it was a surprise, this attack was all the more devastating. Uh, From my time studying this passage, it doesn't seem like this thief coming is referencing the second coming of Christ, While one day Christ will come to purify the church and bring his kingdom fully, here in view, um, in the New Testament, you have both Paul, Peter, as well as Jesus, use this term, thief in the night, showing that this word picture is not a new idea for the early church. Here I think it states that Jesus' sovereignty of having overcome the world and now being the highest authority and the one who holds the life of his church Only he alone gives life, and he alone can take it away. So in that sense, the thief can be seen as the consequence to our sin, not condemnation. This idea of the thief is a warning to stay diligent, to stay in the light, to keep the fires burning, to wake up, and to abide. So what is the solution? This letter already gives us that answer. In verse 2, it says, Strengthen the things that remain, the things that are about to die. So I want you to kind of think of this word strengthen as it would relate to a grapevine. In order for a grapevine to grow, it needs to be watered, it needs to be fed, 
It needs to be pruned and taken care of that way. It needs to be planted in the right kind of environment, the right soil. It needs to be cared for. Only then does it produce fruit. So this right environment is where God strengthens and grows us. I believe most of you know the story of how God moved Katie and me here to Soma about a year ago. But it's not because we had just moved to L.A. I've been in El Segundo about nine years. Katie was born and raised in El Segundo. And we had been in a church, a particular environment or a particular soil, for, for many years. Yet about two to three years ago, God started to do a new work in us. Now, at first, we didn't know where these thoughts and ideas of, of living life, of everyday mission, of church being more than a Sunday morning gathering and a service, we didn't know where they were coming from. But looking back, we know that God was doing a new thing. and He was changing us. It was a long process. Like I said, about two to three years. We didn't always feel like we were being strengthened. But God was pruning us. And cutting things away that were no longer bearing his fruit. And it was hard. It was hard to walk that process with him. It was hard to let go of relationships. It was hard to do, um, to do new things. And to kind of be in um, just challenging situations. As we would meet with our pastor and our mentors. And talking through that process of. Hey we don't feel like we're being led in the same direction as this church. And like what does all this mean God? I don't know what to do with all this. And then after again about, about um, a couple months of doing that with our, our previous pastor. God really surprised us and brought us here uh, to Soma. And it's not something in my wildest dreams I would have ever have imagined. Leaving that church that we had been a part of for so long. But God did it to allow us to grow, to put us in the proper environment and the right soil to grow. And he has been so faithful since then, as we have grown in so many new ways, from DNAs to to leading an MC to, to sharing life with all of you. So in light of that story, let's look at what the scripture says about abiding in the vine and the branches. So we're going to look at John 15. 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, 
showing yourselves to be my disciples. So as we think of that, the vine and the branches, and watering and strengthening and pruning and being in the right environment, as an encouragement to all of us, I want to hear from, from you. What are, what are some activities you do to remain strengthened? How do you spend time with God? What are the practices that you've put in place into your own life to make sure that you are connected to the vine? Go ahead, Tally. Amen. Yes, Christ is definitely always pursuing us. You start the day with him and make sure he's the first thought and aligning yourself. Good. What else? Good. Yeah, so quick spurts of prayer throughout the day. Anything else you do to, as an encouragement to us of how you stay connected, Amy? Definitely, yeah. Paul reminds us, right? Whatever is noble, whatever is pure, think about those things. Good, so I hope that uh, can encourage us today to see how the rest of our body, the rest of our family, are helping, are, are trying to find ways in their own life to abide in Christ. But I think, again, the encouragement, like Ali said, is that realizing that Christ is the one who is pursuing us. That, what we see here is that the church of Sardis, what's at risk for them if they don't abide? They're in danger of being thrown away being allowed to wither. Hence these strong words of wake up and strengthen. Because we cannot bear fruit by ourselves. Only by the Spirit can fruit be produced. If we are spiritually dead, no fruit can come. We would be a church in name only. We would be relying solely on our reputation, and our deeds would be done by routine, not because of the right motivation of love in our heart. And we would worship God with our mouths only, like we read in Isaiah. So therefore, what is our work? Our work is to remain in Him. That's the main thing. To abide in Christ. Yes, He will call us to serve. Yes, He will call us to die to self. Yes, He will call us to love others. But all of that is to be done in Him. Not for some worthy cause. Not for a pastor, not for personal gain, but for his kingdom alone. So as I was meditating on this idea of abiding in this verse, which tells us to remember, I was thinking, how many times is this word remembered used in scriptures? And it's upwards of about 150. I think that means it must be pretty important. And here's one poignant example that God brought to me during my study. It's John 14, 26. It says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I find this striking. Because at first blush, I don't connect the idea of remembering with faith and belief. But as I thought about it more and more, I realized at this point in my faith journey, I find it far more about me remembering who God is and what he has done than me needing to learn some new innovative teaching or like, oh, just some new thing I need to know and then I'll be good. 
the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, is central to our faith. And we need to remember the truth, the power of all he has accomplished for us. For me and and my personality and my nature, it can be easy to just desire more teaching. Oh, I, I need to just learn a little bit more. I need to be a little more prepared. Oh, I need just a little bit more equipping God before I'll go do that. Only then would I be able to live a life worthy of God. But that is a lie. A lie from the pit of hell. It is a false work. For his spirit lives within me. I was encouraged by this quote from Tim Keller. That says, We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. And so while we will never fully understand or to fully know the depth of who God is and his majesty, we will never run out of things to learn about him. The encouragement today is that he does live within us. And by his knowledge and his strength and his power, he will build his kingdom through us. As we saw in the church at Sardis, the opposite of this is being spiritually dead and being disconnected from the power of the Spirit, forgetting who God is and the fact that he dwells in us. They went from being a church that was planted in Sardis by the power of the Spirit of the living God to one that existed in name only, powered by their own abilities and their own strength. They may profess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, but there is no fruit. Their deeds were not finished. They had no obedience to what the Spirit was doing. They have forgotten. They no longer remembered. As we finish here in verses 4 to 6, I want to read them one more time for us. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If I learn something new here about this word soiled, which, which means to stain or to defile or to pollute, and God kind of opened my eyes that throughout Scripture, the idea of, of your garments really symbolized your character. And so that word here, soiled, is showing that Sardis had really gotten lax in their moral standards, and they'd become promiscuous. And these standards had crept into the church. However, there were a few who had not allowed the mindset of the city to pollute them or to stain their character. There were a few whose garments whose character was not defiled or stained by the things around them. 
This small group was spiritually alive. But these few, while the church was being threatened to be destroyed, because they were in danger of a death that could not be reversed, they were close to being in a state that they could not be revived. These few, these few spiritually alive followers offered hope. While Christ may come as a thief against this church body as a whole, he does not forget the believers who have not soiled their clothes. This specific church body may die, but Christ is still alive and at work in the hearts of believers. The good news is that though people will fail, Christ's victory remains. And he will be leading a long train of captives set free into glory. Now, I'll be the first to admit I had a hard time with this, this passage. I struggled with it because at first, this idea that like Christ would come and, and take the church away, it like, didn't sit well with me. I was like, that doesn't seem to like align with what I know about Christ. I had this, like, this feeling in the pit of my stomach uh, of, of God kind of convicting me and, and showing me that it's really the admonishment. It's really the, um, the correction that was challenging me in this passage. Because it is pure ignorance on my part that I, that I would question this, this passage, that God is not alone good. And God showed me it is because I have an incorrect view of the depth and the seriousness and the majesty of who God is. He will not be mocked. He will not let his name be tainted or soiled. That would be against his character. So I felt challenged by reading this because I see myself in the shoes of the church at Sardis. I don't like consequences. And, and here, in this passage, the church is facing a serious consequence. Again, to be very clear, the consequence is not that Christ would forsake the people or that salvation would be lost, but that there are consequences to our sin. But in light of all that, the encouragement is this. Christ is calling to us, wake up. It's not too late. He is pursuing us. He wants what is best for us. This is cosmic and life-changing, impacting the lives we live and the message we are entrusted with. God is at work, and he's calling us to wake up. If we do not want to repent, if we do not want to follow him, if we do not want to obey, he will come like a thief. The trip taught before Revelation on this, this series of gospel parenting. And as I was preparing for this morning, I had such an aha moment. God is our father. He, he is our dad. He is pursuing us. He wants us to be corrected, to be restored, not for condemnation, but to be strengthened and to be connected with him so that we can have full life. Not a life with soiled clothes, but a full life. He came to give us life and life abundant. 
He didn't come to give us a reputation, but true life. Life that is complete. I'm not yet a father, but studying this, I feel the depth of love of the Father for us. He wants us to conquer. He wants us to overcome. He sees the struggles we bear. He sees how hard it is for us to love and not be loved back. He knows the pain of rejection and deceit. He has been there. He walked this road too. All the way to the cross. And he overcame, which allows us to overcome in him alone. Jesus spent his time on earth overcoming. He overcame temptation. He overcame his disciples and their doubt of him. He overcame all sin by dying on the cross. And he overcame even death by rising from the grave three days later to ascend to the right hand of our Father. So listen again here to the encouragement in verses 4 and 5. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Our character, our soul, the core of who we are, will be made complete in him alone. Dressed in white, without stain, without blemish. Because Jesus overcame, he gave us his spirit to dwell in those with the gift of salvation, to be born again and live a new life in abundance with him. That is our hope. We are called to overcome with that hope. Jesus has finished the work. And we are called to walk with Christ in his fullness of completion, acknowledged by the Father, the creator of all. To abide in him alone and to accept his pursuit of us. That is good news. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your spirit, Lord, and, and the gift of your word. And, and just thank you for exposing so much truth to us today. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship you this morning, may we give you our hearts. May we draw close to you in our hearts. May we not worship you in words only. But Father, may we give you all that we are. Because Lord, you have overcome. and You have called us to yourself. That we can partner with you in the restoration of this world.